This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, the wines of South America. We'll talk to the author Amanda Barnes, whose new work is dedicated to the subject. And we're not just talking Argentina, Chile or Uruguay. And Sober October. Whether or not you're up for that, uh, there can be few places more exciting at the moment than the world of low and no. We'll hear from a pioneer, Bill Gamelli of Mocktails, to find out how you develop cocktails that will wow without the alcohol. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. It's described as the essential guide to South American wine, exploring 500 years of Venus history and offering new discoveries, a reference work that extends far beyond Argentina, Chile and Uruguay to exciting up-and-coming wine-producing countries like Brazil, Bolivia and even Peru. The South America Wine Guide is the work of author Amanda Barnes, an authority on the subject who is based in Mendoza for more than a decade until Covid left her trapped on these shores instead. And I'm delighted to say she joins us now, uh, no longer incarcerated. Uh, Amanda, uh, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. An absolute pleasure. I'm really looking forward to chatting. So uh, just before we get to the book, um, just tell us what you were doing in Argentina and how you ended up stuck here instead. (laughs) Well, I've been living in Argentina since 2009 and uh, I came back in, in March 2020 for a course day. I'm studying the Master of Wine and uh, the borders closed behind me about a week or two later. And so, unfortunately, Argentina <laughs> hasn't opened since. Um, so I've had a long hiatus and I'm very much looking forward to getting back and seeing my cat when borders do open, uh, which fingers crossed will be in November. So hopefully not too much longer. Gosh, the cat's uh, being fed, I assume. You haven't just she left is. a tray of whiskers out or something, no. <laughs> no, she is, she's being looked after um, by, by some family friends, so, so that's great. She's, oh, she's had good. to move house a couple of times. She's, I've, I think she's not going to recognise me, or at least she'll ignore me for a few days when I get back, <laughs> as cats Blimey. do. <laughs> well, cats do get the hump, yeah. But anyway, onto the, onto the book and onto the wine. Um, the South America Wine Guide is a, a weighty tome. It must have been an enormous amount of work. Um, why did you want to do it? Well, I mean, I say that really it's the kind of culmination of 10 years living there. Um, and actually the writing, you know, for me, because I've been researching and, and writing about and visiting the wine regions for so long, um, the, the harder part of the work was actually the cartography and the design and pulling together statistics um, and information. But I just felt that South America has really been underserved by wine literature for many for many years. And it's an incredible continent filled with, you know, amazing wine regions, this really rich history. And so I wanted to pull together a book that I that you know gave enough kind of space in my opinion to really explore the regions at great depth and talk about many of the regions that often never get mentioned in wine books like as you mentioned Bolivia and Peru um, so it was just trying to kind of hopefully do justice to, to some of the amazing producers and and stories there. I'm really looking forward to talking about some of those niche regions in a minute actually and by the way the cartography the effort that's gone into that looks absolutely fantastic. Um, Having been based in Mendoza for for more than a decade, you will have seen quite significant changes in the wines of um, that region, but also of South America uh, more generally. I mean, I've only been specialised in wine for five years, although I've been uh, an enthusiast all of my adult life and probably a bit before. Uh, So I've seen the the changes myself. They're, They're quite significant. There has really been more of an evolution, more of a revolution, hasn't there? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think I was very fortunate in the in the time that I arrived because you can look back at the periods and there have been lots of changes, but I'd say since 2000, um, we've seen enormous changes and that kind of period of 2000 to 2010, you know, South America in general, talking about the bigger wine regions, were very much in that kind of Parker era of trying to get their wines up to the same international standard. And then from 2010 to today, what's really exciting is how all the wine regions have really started to kind of look back at their, at their own assets naturally and, and figure out their own kind of identity. And so we've seen this huge kind of pendulum swing, um, largely in Chile and Argentina, kind of looking outwards and then now looking back inwards with that knowledge that they've gained from uh, from the international wine scene and working different harvests elsewhere. So it's been a huge kind of growth period in the last decade. And, you know, the wines are just every every year, every vintage. There's something really new and exciting happening and, and just constantly improving. So it's a real moment for South America. And so, you know, it's been very serendipitous, really, that I arrived at that kind of brink of brink of something changing and, and kind of new excitement and you know learning spending all that time with winemakers and agronomists there you know they've been showing me their kind of experiments and projects as they've developed so I've had a really um, you know fortunate inside view to kind of see how they've developed over this last decade or so which has been absolutely thrilling. Well one of the things that I think you've talked about uh, as a development is the fact that um, perhaps uh, 20 years ago you'd have visiting uh, flying winemakers. So those people who come in from another country, say Australia or or California or, or, or wherever, and kind of tell them what to do. And um, more recently, in, while you've been there, you've seen the development of their own, uh, if you want, indigenous uh, winemakers who have kind of taken over with their own uh, specialist knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think Pablo Morandé kind of told me, summed it up quite nicely in an interview we had many years ago. He said, look, in the 90s, we were looking at, at the US, but we weren't looking at Napa. We were looking at like Fresno. <laughs> you know, we were looking at like big production. We were trying to learn how to do this kind of big kind of mass, mass volume. And then you started to get um, the Bordeaux uh, influence very much in the early 2000s and really focusing there. We always had Australian flying winemakers as well, really kind of focusing on bringing up that kind of new world quality for, uh, for mid-range wines. But what's been so fascinating in these last few years is how winemakers have gone, gone out themselves to different wine producing countries and have looked at the new world. You know, lots of winemakers have done harvests in New Zealand, in the US and South Africa, but also really looked to that kind of lost old world. So many winemakers have really found a lot of inspiration in Galicia and in, in Ribera Sacra in the north of Spain, where you have this same extraordinary revolution of, of winemakers kind of looking at these native and interesting varieties and, and trying to find what makes them unique rather than making, um, you know, commoditized wine from market. So I think that's, you know, what's been so influential in the last few years is winemakers going to very different regions in the old world and kind of looking back at you know what makes their own wine region unique because even though we call South America the new world it is the old world too like there's 500 years of history and these incredible old vines that are over 100 years and these varieties that don't exist anywhere else and um, so there's a lot to look back on too and I think that's what's really influenced this kind of latest movement. Yeah, and you're so right to talk about the nonsense of the new world when you're talking about uh, 500 <laughs> I mean, I say it all the time. Well. <laughs> it's, an easy, so it's, an easy, it's an easy way. It's an easy way to distinguish. And I don't, you know, I, I don't have any, I, I'm not too worried about kind of loaded, um, you know, sentences in that, in that case. But I just think you always need to make it clear that it doesn't, even though we call it the new world, it doesn't mean it's new. Exactly. It's a shorthand. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. and um, talking of um, the old world, new world, I want to explore uh, Criolla. Uh, I, I don't know yeah. if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Criolla, it looks perfect. Like, you could yeah, say you could say Criolla if you want to be particularly <laughs> porteño if, in your pronunciation. But Criolla, okay. well, I'll try that because it's fascinating. <laughs> but also, you devote quite a lot of the book to it, a big chunk, because um, we're talking about um, something that is not historically exported 
um, in the same way as other grape varieties that are are sort of uh, have been more acceptable, I suppose, to the international market. And of course, it's a little bit confusing, which is why it's great um, that you explore it, because um, I have tended in the past to think of Crioja as a as a grape. And actually, it's a, a sort of parent. It's, it's a family of grapes, isn't it? Absolutely. So, I mean, it, it is confusing the term. I love the term, but it, it takes a minute to get to grips too. So Crioja basically refers to anything that was born in the Americas. So normally from Spanish descent. So you might talk about food as Creole. In the US, they'll call it Creole. You can talk about people or customs as, as Criolla as well. And then when we talk about the grapes, we're really talking about those first founding varieties that came from Spain in the 1500s. So the two most important were Moscatel de Alejandria and Listan Prieto. Um, and then from those and a couple others, this whole family of native varieties were born in, in South America. So, uh, you know, we've got um, Ceresa, we've got Vistrochenia in Bolivia, um, Criolla Grande. And then we've also got some interesting spin-offs where they've crossed with other kind of later international varieties like Malbec. There's one called Criolla Numero Uno or Number One. Um, which is actually quite a fun fun wine to taste because it's got the colour of Malbec, but a lot of the character of, of Criolla. Um, but basically, it's this whole family, this network of varieties that were born. The most famous is Torontes in Argentina. And so you can only find them really in South America. And even the parents, Listan Prieto, basically has gone out of existence elsewhere. There's a few hectares left in the Canary Islands. Um, there's some still grown in the US where it's called the Mission Grape. But the real kind of heartland is Chile largely, where it's Pais, uh, and you also get some still in Argentina. And so it gives you a very unique identity for these South American wines that you just don't get to taste elsewhere. Um, and historically, you're right. Well, no, actually not. L longer historically, so 400 years ago, they were exporting these Criolla varieties. Peru was a big exporter, and actually it was the Spanish crown that that stopped them exporting their wine back to Spain because it was causing competition. So actually, in the longer vision of history, Criolla was exported. Um, but then since the 1850s, which is where we really get, that's kind of the before and after, if you like. From the 1850s, these other more modern international varieties, Malbec, Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, arrived from Europe. And from there, we started to see this greater diversity of, of international varieties being planted in South America. And then when the big export boom came in the 90s, obviously, the, the international markets were demanding varieties that they knew, like Merlot, Sauvignon Blanc. Um, and so that's what kind of shifted it. Uh, but very much for domestic consumption, Criollo has always been there. It's a very hardy variety. Typically, they are very hardy varieties. They're quite good yield yielders they produce quite a lot um and so they've always been there for the kind of you know, the day-to-day -day wines that everyone's been drinking uh, in argentina and chile for many years and i think it's really exciting in, in my opinion i've always been fascinated by it and have always loved drinking criollo wines it's been really nice to see winemakers championing them in recent years as you know unique wines but also fine wines that you can you know, you can sell at a restaurant, a fine dining restaurant and, and enjoy. And there are some excellent examples um, now on the export market, uh, which really kind of are restarting that story of, of these really distinctive varieties. On the export market, then, if we want to, uh, off the back of this, go and invest in one of these Criolla wines, um, then what are we actually looking for on the label? Because uh, sometimes, for example, relatively recently, Aldi had a, a, yeah. a 5.99 Criolla yeah. wine uh, in its stores. And yet uh, on a fine dining uh, wine list, you might get a Pedro Para Pais, a wonderful wine, uh, which I absolutely adore, by the way. So what should we be uh, seeking out if we're inspired to do that? Well, so... The Aldi wine, is, a, I think, is a really cool thing that they've done. Um, and so, you know, they just put Criolla on the label so that people start identifying it with Criolla. I believe it's a Criolla Grande uh, is the actual variety that goes into that. Um, but they're, they're all different varieties. So, I mean, in terms of marketing, some wineries might be choosing to call their, their wine name Criolla. But the varieties that you're looking for are the individual ones. So, the most common one that you'll find from Chile is definitely Pais. 
uh, and you get some, you know, the US at the moment is really kind of ramping up their imports of pais from Chile. Bouchon is an excellent producer. Um, Pedro Para, as you said, I love A los Vinoteros Bravos in the south. You get some really nice producers in Itata and Maule and Bio Bio normally. But then there's lots of other varieties too. So, you know, you can look for the, the Croya Grande or Cereza that you get in Argentina. Duruguti both do a nice job of both of those. But really, you need to look for those great varieties. And if you go to my website, southamericawineguide.com, I have a big article on all the Criollo varieties. And there you can see the family tree, which is part of the book. Um, and you can read it all for free and, and kind of get your, get your guide to, <laughs> to Criollo wines and start mm-hmm. kind of looking out for them. The most famous, the one that you'll most find, is Torrontes from Argentina, um, which has been widely uh, exported for, for many years. And that is also a native Criollo variety. There's actually three Torrontes varieties, but <laughs> most of the time you'll only be tasting Torrontes Riojana. It's a great idea to look at that family tree because it's uh, really, even if you're not a wine nerd, it's, it's really uh, fascinating and a, and a very good reason to uh, invest in the book as well, I would say too. But uh, Chile first then. Is Chile the biggest wine producing country in South America or is it Argentina? It's Argentina. Um, ah, okay. just, by a, just by a small margin. Um, but Argentina has much more land under vine. Normally, their production is higher than Chile. However, sometimes in certain years, Chile can actually slightly beat Argentina in terms of production. But, uh, but Argentina is the biggest. OK, well, let's start with Chile because um, it has an association uh, for some of us with sort of cheap and cheerful, which is very unfair when you visit. And I mentioned Pedro Parra, um, I was fortunate enough to go with uh, Liberty Wines to visit uh, him because Liberty obviously import uh, Pedro's uh, wines mm. and, and his Sanso and his Pais uh, down in Etata, absolutely sensational. But still, um, we, we have this, we have a, quite a lot of cheaper, sometimes a little bit more plonkier kind of Chilean wine on the market over here. So um, do you think that's... Um, for a start, I mean, I imagine you'll tell me the perception is very unfair anyway. Yeah, it is. It is. It's, the, it's the same kind of problem that Australia has. You know, you do get some absolutely outstanding wines, but both countries still have that perception of being value rather than, you know, rather than high-end wines. I think what Chile, you know, Chile probably over-delivers on value. You know, you can spend £10 in a supermarket and get a great quality wine from Chile. Mm. So I think, you know, that I think that the, the difficulty is that actually they often over deliver at that bottom end so that people kind of just sit there and are quite content with their, <laughs> with their cheap Chilean plonk. Um, but actually, as soon as you start spending more, you get this incredible increase in quality. And there are some outstanding wines from Chile. Um, and, you know, the great thing, in my opinion, is that they're often only 50 quid. So if you compare that to other kind of wine producing countries in the world, you'd, you'd often be spending a lot more to get that quality. Whereas Chile, you know, you can spend 25, 50 pounds and you can have a stonking wine. Um, and, you know, they could price, they in, in a market, if you were to be selling that with a different country name, I'm sure it'd be triple the price. <laughs> but it's a, it is an image issue, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, one that I hope gets corrected. Argentina has done a better job of premiumizing their image but I don't think that I think both of them are you know are parallel in the quality that they can offer. I should mention Carmen Air here because um, I've had in the past um, some cheaper Carmen Air that rather put me off the grape variety to be honest we're talking about that very (laughs) green kind of um, green tannic um, just not especially um, pleasant really and then more recently I've done some premium Carmen Air and of course this is um, a variety that is um, that is uh, thanks to the the lack of phylloxera in in Chile um, has has survived where it hasn't elsewhere. Um, and I've had some premium Carmenera, and it has been sensational, a total revelation. Yeah, I think the thing with Carmenera that we have to remember is that even though Chile's had it, I mean, the story of Carmenera is that it was brought over in the eighteen fifties and mistaken for Merlot, so it was planted throughout Chile as Merlot. Um, and when phylloxera hit Europe and, and, you know, many varieties kind of disappeared, Carmenere was never replanted. And so it was considered completely extinct. 
And it wasn't until 1994 that an ampelographer who was visiting Chile noticed that the, the stamens of this uh, vine didn't actually look like Merlot and, and you know, correctly identified it as Carmenere. And so it's only since 1994 that Chile has been aware and actually, really, 1996, 1997, because it took a long time for that to kind of sink in. But it's only really since then that, you know, Chile has been aware that they have this totally different variety. And so they were always vinifying it, um, you know, farming it as they would Merlot. And they're very different varieties. Carmenere does not need as much water, for example. So a lot of the kind of green tannin that you're talking about was coming as a result of people overwatering their Carmenere because they were treating it like they would Merlot. And so that's changed in the last few years. You know, winemakers, agronomists have had this steep and quick learning curve. And I think they've done incredibly well, considering it's a very short period of time, really, that they've been mastering this variety that no one else in the world makes. <laughs> so it's been a complete, you know, self-learning curve. And they've discovered that actually you should treat it quite differently in the vineyard um, and with vinification as well. And so you do get two schools of Carmenere um, at the moment, and both of them can be premium. One is that slightly more peppery, floral, earlier harvested style, which I really like. I think it's quite fresh. It's quite mm. zippy. You know, I love, I love pepper in a wine. You know, for me, I, you know, I crave some of those pyrocenes and, and peppery notes because I think they add, you know, they add complexity, which can be absolutely delicious when you pair it with Mexican food or, you know, or something that has kind of that pepper or roasted quality in it. So there's that yeah. school, um, which, is, which is still very modern, like Pumanque, Santa Rita do an excellent example of that style. And then there's the other school, which is, you know, ripening it much more and going for that really kind of, you know, mellow, supple fruit. And, and rather than that pepper quality, you get this real kind of roasted quality um, and, you know, kind of sweeter spice, that kind of paprika, um, which is also equally as delicious. And those are much, those are often the more premium wines. Typically, they will fall into that school, but you can get them on both. And, and so Carmenere, for me, I love drinking it. And, uh, and I think, it, you know, now we're seeing quite a bit of diversity in different regions. And some winemakers, like Andrea Leon is one of my favourite um, winemakers, full stop, she's a great lady, <laughs> really good fun to, to talk to and drink with. And she's making terroir carmenieres for La Postole. So she's got, you know, seven different plots, different vineyards, different regions, which she makes carmenere. And you can really see huge differences uh, between them. And she vinifies them all exactly the same in a very kind of simple, minimum intervention way and so it really marks the differences of regions um, and you know she's picking them at the same kind of ripeness so you know Carmenere is something that we still need to explore a bit more as drinkers and I think winemakers have really been exploring it a lot more in the in the last kind of decade or so now knowing that it's a totally different variety to Merlot yeah. and starting yeah. to treat it um, for its own kind of properties. Well, I would uh, heartily endorse uh, doing that. It's been a revelation for me. Um, talking of revelations, let's move to Argentina. Now, this is, of course, the land of Malbec uh, to most <laughs> of us, and I adore altitude Malbec. Um, but I have to mention Cabernet Franc, because I think I adore um, altitude Cabernet Franc from Argentina, from the Uco Valley. I think I love it even more. Yeah, I love, I'm all in with the Cabernet Franc um, growth. And it's a very new, it's a very, so Cabernet Franc did come over in the 1850s, but it wasn't very, uh, wasn't very planted um, in that period. And then it's only really since the kind of 2000s that it started to kind of be noticed uh, for its potential as a single variety rather than just kind of added into blends. And, uh, and it, it gives you that really nice counterpart to Malbec. You get, you know, again, that slightly peppery note, but also you get kind of nice floral notes and red fruit um, and, you know, nice acidity with a bit of tannin structure, whereas Malbec has quite soft tannins. So it's become a really awesome blending partner for Malbec, um, but also really interesting as a single variety. And it's really kind of boomed. So going from, you know, Barely, I think they were less than 75, if I remember correctly, hectares in, in the 90s. And now there's well over 1,200. Um, but what's great about Cabernet Franc in Argentina is that it's still limited. And so it's still very much used for the high end, 
high quality wines. It's that it claims the second highest export price after Malbec. So, uh, you know, it really is up there in terms of premium wines. And you get some beautiful examples, but not just from the Yuko Valley. It was actually Luján de Cuyo where it, it kind of first took off. So there's some nice examples um, in Luján, which is also a high altitude region. And you've got some interesting ones being made in the south in Rio Negro as well now. Mm, okay, I'll have to look those out because, uh, as I say, it's, it's a current um, obsession. Um, you <laughs> are a huge fan of Uruguay. Uh, I so love Uruguay. Why? <laughs> yeah, why? Um, I think after, I think on a personal note, after kind of, you know, living in Argentina, I first went into Uruguay in 2009, so it was right at the beginning. But every time I've just loved going back because when you live in the, the madness and the chaos of Argentina, um, going to Uruguay is just kind of arriving to this little bubble of tranquility and, and <laughs> you know, very the people of Uruguay are so laid back and so kind of humble and, and you know, and just just really lovely people to spend time with. And it doesn't have that same kind of, you know, what I love about Argentina too is the chaos, but it, it it's just like, it's the yin to the yang of Argentina. So on a personal note, I think that's why I've always loved Uruguay. Um, and the, in terms of wine, Uruguay is very interesting because you've got very distinctive families and they're all typically very small producers and family producers. And so even though the climate is pretty much the same around most of the country, the soils are very diverse, um, which we can talk about if you want. But what me, for me really makes the big difference in Uruguay is that each family has their own heritage their own great varieties that they've brought from their ancestors and their own style of making wine. So you can't talk too much about trends in the same way um, because there aren't too many big companies making wine. They are families and they stick to their family recipe. Like the Pisano brothers, Daniel, who's a real character, he always says, you know, like, this, first of all, this wine is Pisano. And secondly, it's Uruguay. And secondly, and then thirdly, it's South America. But first of all, it's ours. And like, it's our family recipe. And he's one of the few winemakers that will actually, I mean, he's not a winemaker, actually, he's marketing, which is probably why he says it. But he's one of the few people in wine that will actually talk about it as a recipe. And I really love that because I think, you know, mm. in the same way that you do pass on your, your family's ragu recipe for generations, their kind of approach to winemaking has been passed on through generations. And I think that's what makes Uruguay quite interesting to taste because they are all, you know, totally different and unique to the producer. And if you taste the wine sat next to the producer, you, you can tell who's is who's. <laughs> the personality really comes through in the wines. Are we tending to talk Tanat when we talk about uh, the wines of Uruguay? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Tanat's the most planted um, and everyone will have a Tanat. Uh, I, I can't think of any producer who doesn't have a Tanat in Uruguay. But everyone has something else too. I mean, you know, you look at Pablo Falabrino, who has, you know, his ancestors were from the Piedmont in Italy. And so he has Arne and Nebbiolo. Um, you look at, uh, for example, um, Artisana, which is owned by an American as well. So they brought the first Zinfandel in. You know, you look at the Bausa family who have Galician roots. So they brought the first Alberino in. You know, everyone is always kind of looking into their heritage to bring in, use the unique varieties that their ancestors brought or, or bring in um, some old varieties now as a, as a new kind of homage to them. So there's a huge diversity of wines in Uruguay, but everyone will have a Tanat for sure. And sometimes they'll blend it with, with different things too. And Alberino can be fantastic in Uruguay. I had some uh, great examples of that. And, and uh, I share your enthusiasm. I, ha I didn't spend long there, but I thought Montevideo was a, a, a wonderful capital city to visit as yeah, well. Yeah, it's the most laid back capital city in the world. It's fantastic. And you can eat so well there as well. But let's talk about some of the other countries briefly that I know you're keen to touch on because you, um, you devote attention to them in the book. And, and most people don't devote that much attention to the wines of Brazil, uh, Bolivia, I've never had one, and Peru, I have visited Peru, I love it, but I've never had a Peruvian wine either. So what should we be um, interested in, in those three countries? Yeah, so we'll start with Brazil, which actually were producing wine since the 1500s, but it wasn't very successful because it's quite a humid climate, and so it's only really in the 1800s that the kind of hardier Italian immigrants really, you know, managed to kind of figure out how to do viticulture in, in a slightly more challenging climate. 
Um, so typically you get a lot of Italian varieties actually in, in Brazil. Um, and more recently you get lots of the kind of bigger international varieties too. But I think for me, the real highlight um, of Valle dos Viñedos or Serra Gaucha, which is the main wine region, is the sparkling wine. They have some excellent sparkling wine. And it's kind of, uh, you know, it's by no means compares to the cool climate champagne or, or English sparkling. It's much more the style of kind of Cava. It's a much sunnier, um, softer wine, sparkling wines. But, you know, you can have really nice complexity there too. Um, and typically the traditional method ones are very good. Um, and then... One area that I'm really excited about in Brazil is the Serra de Mantequera, which is a mountain chain outside of um, Sao Paulo and Minas Gerais, and, um, and Rio de Janeiro as well, actually. It touches all three. And there you've got some producers who have flipped the harvest on its head. So they're harvesting in July, which is obviously um, winter in South America. And so July is this amazing month in Brazil. It's sunny, it's cool in the evening and lovely in about 25 and sunny clear skies during the day um, and at this higher altitude. So you get these wines with great kind of concentration, but also some freshness. And I'm really interested in some of the Syrah that you get from uh, the mm. Serra de Mantiquera. So Brazil is, Brazil is an absolute monster. I mean, it's huge. It's really unaccounted for and, and really hard to get your head around. It was an absolute nightmare trying to get statistics and, uh, and, and not easy in terms of the cartography either. Um, but it is a really interesting kind of country to delve into. And I think we'll be seeing a lot more from Brazil in the future. Um, mm. You know, they are getting more and more into drinking wine. Um, they're a huge market for South American wine, but I think also that will spur on a lot more uh, production of, of Brazilian wine too. Peru and Bolivia, there's a lot of similarities in some ways in terms of their kind of founding stories. I mean, Peru was the first wine producing country in South America. It was the seat of the Viceroyalty of Spain, which is why they you know, really developed their wine industry quite quickly. Um, and then, as I mentioned earlier, the Spanish crown kind of put a stop to it. Um, because they got jealous of the wine production, which is when Peru switched over to Pisco. So many of the wine grapes are still used for Pisco today. However, there are, you know, they're now, it's legal for them to make their own wine. And so there are um, plenty of wine producers and families that uh, are making their own wines. And what is interesting for me are those Criollo varieties, um, the varieties that you would typically use for Pisco, but now they're making um their own wines and often you know there's some really interesting orange wines and more kind of natural wines there um, not for the natural wine trend but just because they're kind of more artisanal in production um, and some people using the old botijas which are like the the kind of traditional amphora from the region that they always uh, shipped their wine and uh, pisco in so there's there's some interesting things happening in peru um, and then but it's mainly coastal so it's right most of the wine regions are right by the sea they're kind of sandy um, and there's a lot of similarities for me to kind of Baja California, if you've ever been there mm. and tasted the wines uh, from there. And then Bolivia really developed as a result of Potosí, the mine of Potosí, which Cerro Rico, which was one of the most important mines um, in the world. And that kind of a huge population developed there in the 15 and 1600s. Um, I think it was the biggest capital outside of Paris, uh, outside of Europe, uh, of that kind of dimension of population at the time. Um, and so the whole wine industry developed around there, but you get some really distinctive wine regions in Bolivia. I'm a big fan of the Sinti Valley, which is not too far from Potosí, and it's a all high altitude, very steep creek style valley. And there you get loads of these old Criollo vines, and they're really quite magical to see because many of them um, are still cultivated in the traditional way that the Jesuits planted them, um, you know, 400 years ago. So they're, they're grown around trees, which are their chutor. It's their, you know, they use the tree rather than poles to kind of, to allow the grapevines to grow up. And so you often get these really unique flavors because the trees are usually moye, which is pink peppercorn. Um, and so it gives you this quite distinctive wine. And so like the muscat de Alejandria from there is lovely because you've got this you know, old vine muscat, so it's got good concentration. It's got, you know, those kind of muscat aromas, but they're not too heady at that stage. When it's when it's 200 years old, they typically are a bit more earthy, but with that faint kind of floral note. And then this hint of kind of pink peppercorn, which just makes them super interesting and distinctive. 
Um, but Tarija is the main wine region in Bolivia. And that's like, for me, very comparable to Salta, really. It's high altitude, high luminosity. And you get these wines where you get intense color, you get acidity, you get alcohol, you get, you know, you get a big wine naturally. And I think Bolivia now is, is getting kind of better at, at just kind of allowing, not over oaking that, because when you combine that with too much oak, <laughs> it's an enormous kind of wine it's to massive. chew. But when, yes. you, yeah, but when you kind of just let, let the fruit speak, then you, you really get the kind of intensity of the place and you can really enjoy that, which is very similar to the wines that you get from northern Argentina. They are intense and that they are, you know, really powerful and quite beautiful in their, in their own personality. Yeah, with that lovely freshness. My goodness me. Well, no wonder you're missing it uh, because <laughs> you've really inspired me and I'm sure you've inspired those uh, listening to um, to visit uh uh, the, these places in South America, you need to set up a wine bar in London, please, and have some of these wines, <laughs> these Bolivian wines and these Peruvian wines. But in the meantime, I mean, if, if anyone wants to, if anyone wants me to consult on that, I will happily do it. But I'm, well, I, I, I would I could, be terrible behind a bar. I would, I, I would be sat there chatting the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I can think of no one better to consult. But um, I know you do that anyway. But in the meantime, um, I hope the book goes really well. It's fantastic to have a um, a reference home uh, like this and I could talk to you uh, all day to be honest um, so thank you very much indeed Amanda for coming on the drinking hour no thank you thank you for the opportunity to talk about South America and I hope that uh, I hope that more people explore the wines of the regions because they are absolutely worth investing in and, and taking that time to, to get to know we shall do that in a moment we'll have the first of our recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame but first here's news of another Food FM program you might love. Thank you David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM and I'm exploring the world of cheese from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying the drinking hour why not listen to my series A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and the drinking hour. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Okay, it's time for a trio of medal-winning wines and spirits from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And there's not long to wait for this year's batch of Southern Hemisphere winners, including South America, obviously. Uh, judging takes place for that uh, very shortly. So in the meantime, here are some Northern Hemisphere uh, wine and spirits uh, winners from earlier this year when the judging took place. And first, we're off to Oregon for a gold medal winner. Twill Cellars Chardonnay from the Willamette Valley. Uh, this is a small producer growing grapes organically. Uh, awarding their gold medal, the judges said, focused and aromatic nose with hints of pink grapefruit, lemon and apple. The palate continues to develop into rich, ripe stone fruits. The complex peach and nectarine has great concentration and superb freshness. Fantastic expression of the terroir, they said. Uh, next to the uh, Trentino region of Italy for a Pinot Nero, uh, that's Pinot Noir, of course. Uh, Brusaffa Pinot Nero 2018 from Cavit won a silver medal. Um, Cavit is a cooperative winery responsible for a significant chunk of the wines of Trentino, which is a region produces more DOC wines than any other Italian wine region. Around 80% of its annual production is that uh, DOC wine. Uh, the judges said gorgeous aromas of fresh red cherries and raspberries with a hint of floral spice. Beautiful intensity on the palate with the evocative savour of an oak forest floor. Handsomely balanced, they said. It's a good wine, I've tried it. And now to a gin from South Africa. Neisner gin comes from the heart of the garden route, uh, the road route up the uh, Cape Coast. And this gin distillery was the dream of Kay and Ryan Merriweather. Uh, the gin contains nine botanicals, including native honeybush, Mondai white, and nomnums, uh, whatever they are. Um, awarding it a silver medal, the judges said, uh, vanilla custard, jelly tots, and cream soda, combining with rhubarb tea in the nose. A jammy flavor with botanicals shining through in the taste. I need to try that one. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. 
There can be few places more exciting at the moment than the world of low and no alcohol. Uh, some people are still a bit sniffy or snobby about these alternative drinks, uh, perhaps just as they were about New World Sauvignon natural wine when they first came along. But this is a market that is truly driven by demand, not just from teetotalers, uh, but also designated drivers and frankly, those who just fancy a night off or even a month off for a sober October, if that's your bag. Well, here's some inspiration if it is. Uh, Bill Ganelli is the founder of Mocktails, a new kid on the block, uh, a new arrival in the no alcohol cocktail arena. And he joins us now from uh, close to Boston in the United States. Uh, Bill, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure, David. It's uh, great to have you along and to talk about these uh, drinks. I want to talk, first of all, though, about what inspired you uh, to uh, create a range of uh, specific no-alcohol cocktails. Well, it's a, it's a great question, and, and uh, most of the brands um, early in the business, as we are, um, are inspired by their own desire. So in my case, uh, my wife... Um, was not drinking when we first met. Uh, we met actually back in university. We, we, we met at Boston University. And uh, she was not drinking because of her, of her athletic career. She was a, a, here in the States, you um, can get a full ride scholarship to university and she did. Um, so she was um, um, very concerned about her performance in, a, in her athletics. So she wasn't drinking then. And that's when we met. I was, I was in having the full college experience and she was um, um, making sure that she uh, held up her end of the bargain with her scholarship. And so she was focused on performance. And I, as we graduated and got into the working world, we, we had a lot of fun. We went, to, uh, we went to wine country in France. We would go to our cocktail parties. We would have lots of parties to host. But later, um, as we started to try to have children, my wife um, decided that we would need to give up alcohol again. Actually, back then, it's very common today that both male and female will give up alcohol. Uh, back then, she would give up alcohol. So we had this challenge because she was also an attorney and becoming a law firm in a, in a pretty big company. Uh, she was going to be a law partner. She was going to try to be uh, sort of senior in the organization. But all of the parties and all of the um, uh, socializing revolved around alcohol. We found that to be very challenging because people would always ask her the question, are you trying to get pregnant? You know, she mm. was the she was of the, the right age and she was of the right demographic, etc., to be a person that would look to get pregnant. But it may may or may not be the same in the UK. But if um, if you're young and and female and and have ambition, but yet have a family, the glass ceiling is real. Um, every oh, yeah. every speech I give, every speech I give, I, I warn the men in the room that um, we all don't quite understand it, but the glass ceiling is real for females and. Uh, so we we were challenged by this, and she just didn't want to answer the questions anymore, um, David. And that's how it really that was the very beginnings of of trying to solve a problem for us. And I literally w looked all over the world, couldn't find anything available, uh, so decided to do something about it and start the company. It's uh, very interesting. Uh, there's that hideous uh, kind of hackneyed uh, behavior towards a woman who's not drinking uh, the raised eyebrow, all the rest of it, you're assuming there's some desire to get pregnant, which is just so incredibly patronizing and, 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 and hideous and is still very much present, I think. Uh, but you also, I was doing my research, you make a really good point in an interview that I, I read that the designated driver often feels left out. And if the designated driver is left out because all they've got is sparkling mineral water or a cranberry juice they will want to drive home earlier because they're feeling excluded so in a sense if you are drinking there is a lot to be said for having your designated driver enjoy themselves with something that means you've actually thought about them that's exactly right and and you know the the, the double barrel um, problem that my wife had is she turned out to be the person not drinking and so therefore she became my designated driver <laughs> at most of these events. And boy, that that only made things harder for us because she's mm. like, really, you know, here I am making all these sacrifices and you have a great time and, you know, you're imbibing and then I get to be your designated driver. Well, that's no fun for me because I'm getting all the questions and I'm looking to get the heck out of there and you're having a great time. So. So I live that, and uh, the the, stat, the statistics basically say that if there's a designated driver in the group, um, one um, establishments are losing the business, uh, you know, sort of that that beverage imbibing revenue from that person who is the de designated driver because they're only giving them soda or water or something, very second class citizen, 
And, but the also the other statistic uh, is that that group will tend to leave at least one round early because the designated driver will want to get out of there earlier because they're just not having any fun. It's a really good point. And you created this for your own reasons, but you were also onto something because the growth in innovative uh, no alcohol alternatives is astonishing. A few months ago on this program, I spoke to uh, Christine Parkinson, who's the ex-buying director of Hackersan, a uh, restaurant group in, in London, one of the top restaurants. Um, she's hugely experienced in the world of alcohol and cocktails and wine, but she's also uh, pioneering with uh, no alcohol too. And she made a really interesting point that this is the market catching up, that actually consumers are driving this. In a sense, the consumers want it and the market is offering a product and it's not the other way around as it so often is. That's exactly correct. You know, over the history of, of the drinks industry, uh, you had a bifurcation between the alcohol industry and the soft drink industry. And they grew for the last, call it, 100 years in their own direction, neither of whom are able to satisfy this consumer who's uh, growing. I mean, this, this consumer set is much larger than anyone anticipated. So way back when, when I had this challenge with my wife, I talked to friends of mine uh, confidentially and asked them if they were having the same problems or challenges because nobody talks about it. This is going back, oh my goodness, close to 10 years now um, when we first started talking about it. And it turns out that um, some very, very close friends were starting a beverage company to solve this problem because they couldn't find anything either. And um, we decided to um, merge our resources and that's how really Mocktails was born. And the consumer has been out there for a very long time, but the way that the consumer band-aids it is they go to the bar or talk to the waiter or waitress and say, could you give me a tonic and put a lime in it, no alcohol, so it masks my need or masks that I'm not drinking. And so they tried to hide for a long time. <clears throat> and, the, and the industry um, has really all but gorged on the profits from the alcohol for 100 years. So the industry hasn't heard the cry from the from the in fact there hasn't been a cry from the uh from the consumers for a long time but um as uh social media is coming about as is as mobile phones are in everyone's hands cameras in everyone's hands people are starting to realize wow this is a big community and so the community has a chance to um to galvanize and and now just now in the last year or so i'd say during COVID, really um the trade is just now realizing hold on a second we are literally ignoring 25% of our guests that come through the door. And boy, is that a big revenue miss? Why the heck don't we offer something better and try to help these people just like we help the drinkers? Um, you know, the word hospitality means something. And if you're and if you're not treating everyone in an inclusive way, um, you're not giving that that wonderful guest experience. You're not giving them that that you're not creating that memory for for that guest, well, guess what? You're not only losing the revenue at that moment, but they may or may not even come back. So we're working with the trade and you're right, the trade, the distribution networks and the hospitality and the retailers, they're very far behind the consumer and the producers. And we're trying to help and educate and make sure everything gets connected again, because there's a big market out there. Yeah, it's a bit like the way vegetarians were left behind for a long time, but, uh, but boy, have the main food producers and the chains uh, certainly in this market uh, caught up subsequently because it's it's good business sense so um, the demand is there how do you go about creating a brand new product in that space well for, for us it was a journey um, you mentioned that we're a bit of a newcomer but actually um, we started the company a long time ago and we started in the states we worked with everything we could hear you know from the ingredient point of view and the manufacturing point of view and sort of breaking into the business we were one of the first true non-alcoholic um, offerings but what we found was there was something missing we just couldn't get our we just couldn't build a product the right way so what we did is we said why don't we take a step back i know we're, we're here in the usa but um, let's take a step back and where can we produce our product so that it is the highest quality product on earth and how can we then produce that product at a at a cost structure and a and a delivery structure that now it becomes an affordable luxury if you will um, and we, we decided to actually pull up stakes and uh, move our production to the UK because we found that we could source the best products on earth um, through the EU and, and the UK, um, produce our product in the, in the UK, and, um, and, then, and then export it back into the US and Canada and other countries. But the journey of creating the drinks was um, uh, 
it was it was learning um it was a failure it was um trial and error and you just have to keep working at it but what we decided to do in the end was to produce drinks that resembled that drinker's experience but we wanted a variety of looks tastes um, glassware and so we wanted a full range so that's how we ended up with a sanskria a uh, moscow mule um, macarita and a macapolitan so you have four different experiences uh, four different glasswares pairings with food is quite different we ended up with a range that could satisfy most of the people out there because those are four of the most popular drinks uh, that we could um, we could uh, assimilate or, or, or replicate and so we started there but what's amazing now is we're free to now that the market is catching up we're free to experiment and try new things David so we're actually um, coming out with some new products coming very soon which are new ideas and things some some things will resemble um, analogies in the in the alcohol space and some things won't so it'll be um, it's it's a fun adventure of creativity um, and I think we're into a whole new creative mode and I think the whole industry is moving into that mode as well well you're certainly uh, creative with your names as someone who's spent most of his life uh, writing headlines um, I love your ability to work uh, mock into various uh, different names they're, they're very uh, well thought through and, and as I say very uh, creative but you talk about the tastes and I, I think you you're obviously um, you've got some really distinctive tastes you're going after but what about texture because that's the thing I think that alcohol brings that people don't always realize it isn't just texture there is taste and and, and viscosity and, and, and so forth but but really that that um, that texture is the hardest thing to emulate I would have thought am I, am I right well you, you're 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 more right than you know as it turns Turns out um, sensory perception, experts in sensory perception have figured out that only 15% of our taste experience comes from our taste buds, the actual taste itself. The rest comes from the smell, the look, the texture, the, the, the feeling against your lips, et cetera, et cetera, um, that cold beverage or that hot beverage or whatever it is that we're drinking or eating. So um, we tried to attack it from uh, a much broader point of view, um, and we call it a taste experience rather than just taste. So yes, we, we approach it that way. And I'll tell you, it was really, really hard to do. Um, most folks in the industry, particularly in the alcohol side of the industry, they don't necessarily realize that it's actually harder to produce an adult non-alcoholic um, drink than it is to produce an alcoholic drink. And it's actually more expensive to produce it because the alcohol itself is in fact extremely inexpensive to make. But the, um, but the consumer gets that, that alcohol taste feel that, they're, that some, in some cases they're used to. There's a lot of people now that are growing up and, and have never had alcohol, so they don't have anything to compare it to. Um, but yes, the, the sensory perception and the experience around it is taste, smell, look, um, effervescence, or whatever it is you want to add to your products to make it that full-on experience. It's interesting you mentioned cost there because I did uh, a segment on uh, this morning on ITV back in January for uh, Dry January. And that's a, a big morning show of uh, the likes of which you obviously have in the United States as well. And uh, the presenters were shocked by the prices of some of the no alcohol alternatives. And uh, I put that down to the kind of cost of innovation. Uh, but it's also, I think, cost of ingredient. and. The reason people are shocked is because we're used to paying sin taxes on alcohol, a kind of naughty tax. But actually, um, it, it's, the alcohol itself, although it's taxed highly, isn't a particularly expensive component part. Your, your kind of costs, I assume, are in innovation and ingredients, really. Yes. And, you know, we, we looked around the world and we, we spare no expense to, to curate the world's finest ingredients to put in our products. And you don't necessarily have to do that with alcohol. There are, of course, super luxury brands that do that. Um, but, you know, the alcohol does most of the work for you. So, you know, there's a lot of inexpensive alcohol out there that is artificially inflated because of the tax structure. So, yes, uh, cost of innovation. Of course, most of these products in, in our world today are, are small batch runs. So, you know, we're not Anheuser-Busch producing, you know, 10 zillion cases a day in our plants around the world. So 
the costs are different, um, the, the ingredients are more expensive, and the costs of actually producing the non-alcoholic product, um, if you were to look at it on an ounce-by-ounce ounce basis, are, are more expensive. And our incredible um, um, mixologist, Ezra Starr, who's head of mixology for our company, she taught us a long time ago that it's actually harder um, to not only make the, the drink, but it's harder to make it properly in a bar as well. Um, so when you, when you take the alcohol out, you literally take out in a component of not only the taste and the experience and the rest of it, but you take out a very handy preservative. So now what are you going to do to keep the product safe um, and shelf stable, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of technological innovation that has gone into uh, these products and it is, it is definitely a challenge. So the other, the other part, the other half that you may not have realized is not only have we been trained by the alcohol industry to think that it's expensive, but we've also been trained by the soft drink industry to think that things that don't have alcohol in it are extremely inexpensive. But that's only because the cost of their ingredients are extraordinarily low, uh, very, very cheap ingredients. In fact, for the, for the soft drink industry for a, a long, long time, um, it's not really about the cost of ingredients. It's really the marketing that, that, that goes into those products. So you have these two forces at play. And when you now try to present a drink that is on par with the bar experience without the alcohol, Yes, you have the cost side, but then you're, you're right. The consumer expects it to be really inexpensive because that's what they've been trained to think. And the trade thinks, geez, this is, this is crazy. We're not even having to pay tax on this. How can it be that expensive? But yeah, it boils down to uh, innovation, ingredients, and batch sizes. And, and this, this, will, this will get better and better over time. The consumer will be trained, but also as we, as we grow as an industry, it will get uh, easier for us. That's really interesting about the cheap, soft drink end also influencing people's perceptions because my automatic assumption i confess still when i approach something that is no alcohol is that they're somehow going to make up for it with the addition of sugar ah yes is that right it's no actually ironically um it's almost the reverse in a way because we also because it's a non-alcoholic product and a lot of our consumers are looking to be healthy lifestyle uh, folks they're looking for lower sugar so what's very interesting is that there's a lot of psychology that goes into this and i always talk about the global consumer psychographic and how that's shifted around the world and it's all confluencing around technology and you know google search and having phones in people's hands all over the world now we can all search the same things at the same time. The whole world has um, changed the consumer psychology has changed around consumer products and particularly food and beverage for a lot of reasons. So that may be a, a different show, David, that we can mm. jump into those uh, conversations. But but essentially, no, the, the consumer, ironically, if they're drinking alcohol, they look the other way when it comes to their sugar intake. So a great example is if you're going to have a full-on margarita at a bar or restaurant, you might have, you know, 80, 80 um, milligrams of sugar and uh, four or five or 600 calories per, per margarita. Wow. Um, when you have our margarita, um, we have 80 calories and a tiny fraction of the uh, sugar. But oftentimes people will say, oh, my goodness gracious, you have sugar in here. <laughs> it's like, well, if you have a regular margarita, you know, you're getting a quarter of what you would normally have. So there's a, there's a, there's a relative, there's a relative um, comparison that we that we need to educate consumers on. And you can literally have four of ours uh, to one alcoholic margarita in most, at least American bars and restaurants. Um, so so there's there's a perception um, and an education that still needs to go on to, to, to let people know that yes, there is sugar in, in these products, but that's not all. You're looking at um, trying to source, you know, botanicals and spices and really incredible ingredients that um, only the finest crafted um, spirits in the world will use or the finest crafted wines in the world will use. So again, people will compare a non-alcoholic to a, a, a to a glass of average alcohol. But if you started comparing the ingredients and going, oh, wait a second, th- those ingredients are used in some of the finest alcohol products in the world, but we don't pay 10 pounds a liter for that. We, we pay $40 a liter for that. And when you do the math, it starts to, you start to realize that on a on a fair comparison, you are actually getting a very highly a high quality product compared to another high quality alcohol product. There is there is in fact a pretty good price differential. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's one of the things that I'm you know, learning uh, through uh, chatting to people like you is just this ingredient provenance, ingredient cost 
is uh, really acute. Um, you're clearly investing in this, uh, lots of money, uh, because you clearly see that this is uh, the right place to be. Um, and I'm assuming you're seeing incredible growth in interest in these drinks. Yeah, it has been uh, a journey uh, for uh, quite quite some time, and uh, we we were way ahead. In fact, we were way too early, I would say, in in the development of our of our brand and our product. Although, being early allowed us to get um, mocktails.com, which can you believe it was actually available when we started wow, the company? Wow! Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so today, trying to get you know a, a URL like that would be next to impossible. So being early had its benefits, but we have we have sort of um, lived through the learning phases, and then we had the chance to move the production as we discussed. So uh, yes, the growth now is is dramatic. It's noticeable, and what I would say is COVID really interrupted everyone's life and business plans, and, and is a tragedy for so many reasons. Um, so um, we can again, that's another show. We can talk a lot about that. But what it has done is it's moved that consumer psychographic that I've talked about very quickly towards health and wellness. And, you know, we are a better for you product range. So people are looking for something better for them, not just from the alcohol point of view and moderating is part of becoming healthier. If you're drinking too much, obviously that's not good for your health. But when you don't drink alcohol, what are you drinking? You're drinking soda. Well, you're drinking water, which is fantastic. And we all should drink water all the time. So that kind of take that off the table, but you're drinking soda, lemonade, iced tea. You're drinking things that have a lot of um, sugar and syrups and chemicals and preservatives and all kinds of things in them. So you're not getting any healthier by, you know, changing from alcohol to soft drinks. So consumers, when they're when they're trying to live a healthier lifestyle, they are looking for that um, alternative, which really hasn't existed until very recently. So yes, there's a little bit of a, I would just call it a turbocharge because of the COVID era um, has gotten behind products like ours and is, is pushing things forward rather rather rapidly. Great news. And what's next then? You hinted earlier on at some other things you might have in the pipeline. Yeah, we have a, a, a full range of new product development. Um, our first four flavors um, have been uh, really well received. In fact, we have some tremendous uh, uh, acknowledgement and awards from some of the best sommeliers and, and spirit buyers in the world through through the awards that we've won. So there's a lot of recognition as to what we've done. And we created a process, not just, this isn't just a throw together a product and, and hope it works. There, there's a, there's literally a, a technology process that we use to uh, create new drinks. So we have a full range of new offerings coming. Um, I can't really uh, discuss them just yet, but um, what I can promise you is that it's, it, it's a variations on current alcohol analogies, but also some new things. And uh, because we look to the world for inspiration, um, we have found inspiration out of Asia, out of the Middle East, out of the Americas. Um, uh, We found inspiration around the world to come up with some really incredibly new um, ideas. So I think we're likely to have two new uh, drinks come out possibly by the new year, maybe for dry January, probably another two um, shortly after that. And we also have um, some wine alternatives coming because we feel like um, the wine is probably the hardest of all the drinks to to create. And we have had tremendous feedback from buyers and consumers alike um, that what we're producing is um, um, can do really well in the wine space. So so we have some interesting and fun, really, really fun things to bring to market. And we'll also be bringing some new pack out um, pack sizes and new pack um, pack formats to markets like cans and and other things that will allow consumers to enjoy them in different uh, occasions. Well, good luck with wine, because I think that is definitely the hardest area. It's the area that's the furthest behind uh, versus beer and uh, uh, cocktails and and, and spirits. So good luck with that. And you'll have to come back and tell us about them uh, when you are able to talk about the new product. But uh, it's fascinating uh, talking to you, Bill. Uh, Well done on being ahead of the curve. And thanks for joining us on The Drinking Hour. You're absolutely welcome. It's been my pleasure. And I'd like to do one better. I'd like to invite you to be one of our tasters for our wine product coming up. We'll do that and see what your thoughts are because you clearly are a wine lover. All right, I am. Yeah, it's a deal. Thank you so much for having me. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world 
to judge the best in the world. Well, let's mark the start of sober October, if that's your thing, uh, with some suggestions from the IWSC Hall of Fame. These are 2020 medal winners uh, at the IWSC. Liars, American malt non-alcoholic spirit, won a gold medal, no less. A major player in the non-alcoholic spirit market, Liars' aim is to produce a range of alcohol-free cocktails that look and taste like the real thing. They have a, a, a mock amaretto that is absolutely fantastic that I think also won a gold medal. But the judges said of this, the American malt... An aromatic offering with oak, vanilla and floral notes on the nose, leading to a balanced fruity palate with a delicious buttery mouthfeel. The rich composition is lifted with bright strokes of tea and apple, providing complexity. Excellent, they said. Next, Bloom with a Hint of Elderflower, Low Alcohol, from Quintessential Brands, won a silver medal. It's the vision of master distiller of Bloom Gin, Joanna Moore, to create a cocktail that could be enjoyed by all. The judges said, tropical notes of passion fruit, pineapple and guava lead the aromatic profile, making way for soft tangerine and fresh grapefruit flavours on the palate, clean and light-bodied. And finally, Everleaf non-alcoholic aperitif, created by a conservation biologist who spent years perfecting the perfect drink. All the botanicals are sustainably sourced and it won a silver medal. The judges said, a bright example with an intense dried orange character. The palate is lively and flavoursome, rounded by nutty notes and well-balanced too. So some inspiration there if you're going to go for it. If uh, Bill hasn't already uh, inspired you uh, with his mocktails, which I suspect he has. Uh, That's it for the drinking hour for this week. Thanks to Bill and also to Amanda for her uh, knowledge on uh, South America. I hope you enjoyed the programme. Good luck if you're taking on Sober October. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter, or you can follow me as well, hopefully. I'm Mr Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. And do join us again next time. The Drinking Hour on Food FM.